Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today, I want to tell you part two, which includes the end, of Anderson's fairy tale, The Little Mermaid. It's been a couple of weeks, so I want to start by refreshing all of our memories about part one and the opening discussion. You might recall that before I started this story with you, I talked about the value of examining this story and any story and your reactions to it, even if, especially if, you dislike the story or a part of it. A troubling perspective or moment or an image in a story can be very rich if you use it as a catalyst for exploration of your values and prejudices. It's a learning opportunity. Don't we pass that phrase around a lot? But it's true. It's a learning opportunity whether or not you change your mind. And you might not. You may just come to a deeper understanding of what you feel to be valuable to you. And that is a central idea here with this podcast. I guess what I'm really trying to teach you is how to see by and see through our myths and stories. It's a matter of perspective and insight, not belief. I'm sharing wonderful stories with you, stories that have endured for centuries, millennia even, by virtue of their beauty, truth, mystery, and a process, a process that anyone can use to grow, to go deeper, to wake up, to keep the mystery alive. The mysteries that surround our world, all of the others, and your own sweet self. A friend recently loaned a book by Alan Watts to me called The Book on the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are, and I'm finding it very interesting. Watts is a thinker, and so the book deconstructs the logic that we are conditioned, culturally conditioned, to adopt and follow in constructing our reality. But one thing that he says really struck me, and I have certainly found this to be true in my own experience, and that is that the most profound things and the most powerful tools are easily overlooked because they are so simple or appear to be so simple. Our stories and the power that they contain to wake us up, to stir our imagination to tease and trouble us is a good example of something commonly available that can lead us into something really interesting if we set aside what we've been told about them as children's stories. So, okay, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, right? (laughs) Because you are, after all, listening to Myth in the Mojave. So let me give you a brief recap of part one of the story. When the story begins... 
we discover that deep down under the sea, there is a beautiful kingdom of mer people ruled by the sea king. The sea king is a widower with six daughters, six mermaid princesses, and his elderly mother cares for them, for him. Part of this care is that she entertains them. She tells them stories, including stories about the human world out there beyond the watery depths. And these stories and that world are a source of great fascination for the youngest mermaid in particular. All of these young mermaid princesses are very happy. They have many entertainments available to them, including a personal plot in the royal garden. And the youngest mermaid decorates hers with round red flowers that remind her of the sun visible through all the water up above her and a white marble statue of a beautiful boy that she found in the sand, the result of a shipwreck or something. And this garden foreshadows the love that later blooms in her heart for a human prince and the possibilities of his world. Now, when a mermaid turns 15, she is allowed to swim all the way up to the surface to go up above the waves and check things out, check out the human world and everything else on her own. And each one of the mermaid princesses does this, and each one has her own adventure. She finds her own thrills. And finally, the youngest mermaid turns 15, and she can go up, and she sees a fine ship with three tall masts, and a birthday party is taking place on this ship, complete with fireworks and dancing, and it's in the honor of a handsome young prince, a handsome young prince, just her age. She watches the prince all night, and she also watches as a storm rolls in that eventually destroys the ship, and the prince is thrown into the water, and she saves him. He doesn't remember any of this, but she can't forget it, and she can't forget him, and she returns over and over as the days and the months pass to the little patch of beach where she left him to be found by other human beings. She goes there in the hope of catching a glimpse of him, and this never happens. So finally, she tells her sisters about her adventure and about rescuing the prince. And one of them knows where he lives. So they all swim up there together, the six of them arm in arm, and she sees the magnificent palace with a long flight of white stairs that reaches down to the sea. And now that she knows where he lives, she begins haunting this place at night, so to speak, uh, hoping to catch a glimpse of him. She also steps up her interrogation of her grandmother about human lives and the human world. And one day, she thinks about how humans drown and death and asks her grandmother about this. And she learns that there is a fundamental difference between people and human beings. A fundamental difference in that she, the youngest mermaid, feels it is quite important and very significant 
And that difference is that human beings have an immortal soul and go to some place up above the heavens when they die, and that mer people, mermaids, have lifespans of 300 years, and when they die, they become foam on the ocean waves. Her grandmother tells her that it is not possible for a mermaid to get an immortal soul because you can only get it if you attain the singular love of a human being, if you are loved by a human above all else. And the tail is an obstacle to this because human beings find them ugly and freaky and, you know, (laughs) we don't have to explain that too much. Well, the mermaid decides to go and visit the sea witch out beyond the edge of the known world to see whether or not this witch can help her. And when she arrives, the witch knows why she's come. She knows that she wants the means to trade her tail for legs so she can win the heart of the prince and gain an immortal soul. She warns the youngest mermaid about all of the pain that will be involved, ongoing pain, because walking on her legs and feet is going to be excruciatingly painful. She warns her that the cost of failure will be death. If the prince marries somebody else, she will die. And the youngest mermaid takes all of this in and decides that she's going to go for it. She can do it. And then the witch tells her that payment for this necessary potion has to be quite steep. In fact, it has to be her most valuable possession, the mermaid's beautiful voice. The youngest mermaid has the most beautiful voice of all. And she has to give this up. And she decides to do that. She makes the deal, and the witch cuts out her tongue and makes the potion for her. The youngest mermaid swims up to the white staircase of the palace, drinks the potion, and is immediately consumed by a terrible burning pain and faints. And then. When she woke up, the sun was shining and the prince was looking down at her. She glanced down and saw that she had the lovely long white legs that any human would own. The prince asked her who she was and how she got there, but of course she couldn't speak. All she could do was look up at him tenderly. He took her hand and escorted her into the palace. And every step she took felt like she was walking on burning knives and needles. Still, she moved lightly and gracefully, and everyone was charmed. The prince had some beautiful, costly dresses made for her, and invited her to accompany him everywhere he went. Not long after this, there was a big party, and some servant girls were brought in to sing and dance and offer the entertainment, and the young prince was enthralled with them. And alas, the little mermaid sat there, mute. She couldn't sing. She couldn't sing, and she knew that she had an even more beautiful voice, but uh, it was a pity. But she could still dance, and she moved so gracefully that everyone was enchanted, including the prince. 
You must never leave me, he told her. And he bade her sleep on a velvet cushion outside his bedroom door. The mermaid and the prince had many adventures together. She went horseback riding with him. They climbed tall mountains. They visited foreign lands. They took many trips on his fine ship. And sometimes her feet bled from the effort of these excursions. But she just laughed and smiled and kept on going. And at night she crept down to the marble steps where they met the water's edge and soaked her burning feet in the cold sea. And then she thought of home and her family and what she'd left. But here was the prince. And this prince was growing fonder and fonder of the little mermaid with every passing day. With her eyes, she asked him, Do you care for me more than anyone else? And he seemed to understand. He kissed her brow, and he told her, Oh, you are more precious to me than anyone else. You have the kindest heart of anyone I know, and you are so devoted to me. In fact, my little foundling, you remind me of a young girl that I met once and will probably never see again. She saved my life. I was in a shipwreck, and she found me on the beach. But she belongs to a holy temple and will likely never marry. But she is the only one that I could ever love. My good fortune sent me you in her place. The little mermaid was glad to hear of his affection. But she thought, oh... Little does he know, I am the one who saved his life. But he says that the other girl belongs to a holy temple and is probably out of his life forever. So I will stay here and be by his side every day and devote myself to him. And he will love me and I will have an immortal soul. Not long after this, the prince's parents decided that he should marry. They arranged a marriage for him with a princess in a distant land. The prince told her that he was going to have to go and meet the princess that they had chosen for him. My parents insist, he said, but they will never force me to marry someone I don't love. And I am sure that I could never love her. She's not like the young girl at the temple whom you resemble. So... If I have to choose a bride someday, it will be you, my quiet little orphan. And then he kissed her on the lips. The little mermaid was on the ship with the prince when he sailed to the distant kingdom. She stood by him on the deck when they came into the harbor. Bells were ringing and flags were flying and a great crowd was gathered to welcome them. But the princess was not among them. She was waiting at the palace. Everyone said that she was quite beautiful, well-educated, and virtuous, too, as she had been raised at a holy temple. At last, they were ushered into the great hall. And when the princess entered, the little mermaid had to admit to herself that she had never seen anyone more enchanting. The princess walked toward the prince, and he suddenly shook his head and smiled, He moved towards her eagerly and took her in his arms. It's you, he said. 
You are the young woman from the beach who saved my life. He turned to the little mermaid. This is the best thing imaginable, he said. More than I would ever dare hope. This is the young woman I told you about. And because you are so devoted to me, I know that you share my happiness. The little mermaid smiled and kissed the young woman's hand, but her heart was breaking. She knew the day of the wedding would mean her death. Soon she would be foam on the ocean waves, and her hope for an immortal soul was gone. The wedding day was beautiful, as was the church, the bride, the palace, and the party. Everyone was overjoyed, and the little mermaid played her part bravely, even carrying the bride's train as she walked down the aisle. That evening, the bride and groom went aboard their ship. Colored lanterns were lit, and music played, and everyone danced and sang, and once again, the little mermaid danced with such beauty and grace that cries of admiration rang out from all sides. She felt as if sharp knives were cutting her feet, but she didn't notice. The pain in her heart was far keener. She knew that this was the last night she would see the prince. She thought of her family and the life that she had forsaken. She had given up her beautiful voice and endured excruciating pain for a man who had never suspected her agony. And her life would be short because she wanted an immortal soul. This was the last night that she would see the stars or breathe the cool night air. At last the party was over. The royal couple retired together into a tent of red and purple while the ship rocked gently on the waves and the sails flapped softly with the breeze. The little mermaid stood on the deck alone, gazing into the sea. Suddenly, she saw her sisters rising up from the depths, arm in arm. They looked pale and drawn, and she noticed that all of their lovely long hair was gone. We gave our hair to the witch, they told her, so that she would help you escape your fate. She gave us a sharp knife. See? Look. Before sunrise, you must use this to kill the prince. When his warm blood splatters on your feet, your fishtail will grow back together, and you'll be a mermaid again and can come home to us. Everyone has been heartbroken since you left. Hurry, hurry. Soon the sky will be streaked with red, and it will be too late. And they tossed the knife up to the little mermaid and sank down beneath the waves. Perhaps, perhaps all was not lost. She had lost the prince and the chance for an immortal soul. But maybe she could go home again and live out the 300 years granted to her kind. She crept quietly to the tent where the prince and his bride slept in each other's arms. She bent down and gently kissed his brow. The sky was growing brighter and she looked down at the sharp knife in her hand. She heard the prince whisper the name of his princess in his sleep. Ah, she 
was the only one in his heart. The little mermaid trembled. She ran to the railing and threw the knife into the sea. The water turned red where it fell, and with the last glance at the prince, the little mermaid threw herself into the waves and felt her body begin to dissolve into foam. The sun was rising, casting its warm rays onto the cold water, but the little mermaid didn't feel like she was dying. She opened her eyes and saw hundreds of lovely transparent creatures hovering above her. They soared through the air without wings, and the little mermaid realized that she was also rising up out of the foam and into the air. "'Where am I?' she asked. "'You are among the daughters of the air,' they replied. "'Like you, we do not have immortal souls, "'but we do not need the love of another to win one. "'We can earn one for ourselves through good deeds. "'You have struggled to do what we do, "'and now you've joined the world of the air spirits. "'Through good deeds, you too can earn an immortal soul in three hundred years.'" People on the ship were waking up, and the mermaid heard sounds of them bustling about. She saw the prince and princess searching for her, watched them stop at the rail, and look down into the waves as if they knew what she had done. Unseen by them, she kissed the bride's forehead and smiled at the prince and flew away. Not the typical happy ending, is it? Because the Little Mermaid doesn't get the prince. Now, in the Disney movie, she does. And the movie was criticized, has been criticized, for reinforcing the romantic notion that fulfillment is only possible through marriage to the perfect man. And Jack Zipes, who does a lot of writing about fairy tales, points out that in the Disney movie... Ariel, the mermaids, nonconformist behavior was basically a selling point. Her rebellion was never to be taken seriously because she was destined from the beginning to wed the perfect partner and form a charming couple. Zipes's use of the word destiny is important, I think, because there is a strong hint of that in the story in the form of the mermaid's garden and the white statue. The beautiful white statue that she embraces, but that will never embrace her, right? Now, whether or not this story, as Anderson tells it, is a story about romantic love is up to interpretation. A central question is, what was the little mermaid after Was it the prince and love, or was it an immortal soul, or both, or a combination of those things with something else added in? I found an interesting comment by Marina Warner uh, talking about the popularity of the movie. So back to Disney, the one with the ending where she gets the prince. I mean, Warner says, well, an awful lot of people have been disturbed by the fact that that film was so popular with little girls because we want to steer them away from this idea that they've got to have a man and that they would subject themselves to such cruel treatment and such agony 
in the pursuit of it. Uh, she says, yes, that's all true, but let's note here that, quote, the issue of female desire dominates the film and may account for its tremendous popularity among little girls. The verb want falls from the lips of Ariel, the little mermaid, more often than any other, until her tongue is cut out, end quote. Okay, well, that until her tongue is cut out is a pretty important detail. But various people have passed around different ideas about what the mermaid was truly after. Tatar, who edited the uh, collection that I found this story in, suggests that she makes this hard bargain not only because she loves the prince and what's the prince, but because she has a desire for a richer and more enriching domain, one that will allow her a greater range and play for her adventurous spirit. And we remember that the Little Mermaid was the one of all of the mermaid princesses who did not tire of her explorations and didn't lose her interest in this other world and decide to just kind of stay home and play with the fish, which is what her sisters did. So I wonder, how readily do we grant that women would have such a desire? I mean, do we tend to assume that women want love, romantic, partnered love, above all else? Is there something in the critique of that that perpetuates it? in that weird way that obsessive reporting about Donald Trump is just saddling us with more Donald Trump? I don't know. These are questions, questions to consider. The Little Mermaid is compelled by a strange aspiration, by one that no one else in her world seems to share or understand, and her fascination with it leads her to make a very bad hard bargain But she does achieve something in the end. She does get something in the end. Now, I said there was something that I didn't like about the ending when I first read the story and started learning it, and it was bound up with this notion of the soul connected to immortality, suggestion of heaven, good deeds, all of that that put it in the Christian realm, which is something I'm always contemplating given my upbringing in a very Christian family. And I realize that I don't have to stick with that particular notion. I can look at it as her desire for something beyond, for something else, for something that was not going to be part of her world as it as it was constituted. So that's where I land, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But there's another thing here that I think is worth mentioning, and that is the view of death here. Campbell noted that the central problem or challenge of human life that a mythology needs to address is death. That it happens, that it's necessary for life, what happens when we die, all of those questions are very important. And here we have this quote-unquote little children's fairy tale where the view of death is an open question and one for us to consider. What do you think? I mean, would it be better to have an immortal soul or are you looking forward to being 
foam on the waves of the ocean. And this is connected again to what the little mermaid was after. Is there anything that you long for, any aspiration for which you would sacrifice as much as she did, simply to be able to try to attain it? When I told this story in Joshua Tree, someone steered the conversation in that direction, brought this notion of soul and highest aspiration and love all together very beautifully with the notion that by pursuing an immortal soul and the love of a human and then finding herself, finding her own soul through choosing to love, even though it meant her own death, that the Little Mermaid achieved that most beautiful inner marriage with the self, that she owned all of it, that she had self-love. Now, that's a beautiful thing. And one thing that I do really love about the story is that she doesn't need the love or recognition of the prince to get what she wants. She earns her chance to possess it through her own character and actions, ability to love, to accept, and surrender. So we have this interesting thing happening here with heroism, too. She is heroic, don't you think? The way that we commonly use that term, with the bravery and the self-sacrifice. But there's an, an interesting and important twist here, and that she doesn't achieve through conquering someone else. She doesn't come to terms with what she's done with her life and rid herself of her foolish aspirations or love by killing the prince, any of that. She surrenders. She throws herself off the ship and something comes in to save her, something that she didn't know existed. And that is the hand of fate or destiny. I often talk to people about their lives with stories. And so many of us, seems like all of us, want to have a purpose. We want to have a specific purpose and destiny. And yet, it is so difficult to accept the existence of the larger forces in our lives the many synchronicities, the patterns, the archetypal patterns, the psychic, whatever you want to call it, there is something else that's happening beyond what our ego determines, something that takes us even further than our character. Well, I'm going to end on that note. (laughs) So that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you're new to Myth in the Mojave, I invite you to go to the website or the Facebook page and subscribe so that you receive regular program announcements every time I release a new episode. I hope you will share this program with others and spread the word about Myth in the Mojave. And if you are finding something of value here, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs, 
past, present, and you make sure that there are future programs. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.